Let's turn in our Bibles, if you don't mind, to 1 John chapter 2. We will finish the second two verses, the last two verses rather, from 1 John 2 and extend down into the beginning of chapter 3 today. I want to once again say what I have said in the past. I know I speak on behalf of our North Point family that we're so grateful for the way that you at Berlin have welcomed us in. We had another elders meeting with your elders this past Tuesday. For a long time, we were working on things like bylaws and budgets and how we're going to be one church. This past Tuesday would looked a lot more like what would it really look like if we're going to shepherd these two churches together. And uh, it was a really, and I, <laughs> this, you don't know me that well, some of you, um, so when I say this, it may not really strike you, but it was a really fun meeting. I don't always love meetings like that, but it was. It was really great to sit down with like-minded men who love Christ and love you too. I, I've joked before that the first time we met together as elders, it was pretty awkward. You know, we're coming from these two different church traditions and so forth. And, uh, but that went away quickly, and, and one of the things that helped with that was just how welcoming your elders were to us. Um, Bob Schmidt has made me feel like a brother. I love you for that, Bob. I'll forever be in your debt. Dave Howe, you have made me feel like that. Dave, Dave routinely says to me when I greet him, so I will say to him, you know, the traditional Midwestern thing, Dave, how are you doing? And he routinely says to me in reply, better now. That's, isn't that sweet? Uh, he doesn't have to do that, but he does, and I think he means it. Um, I, remember, I remember Lisa, whenever you spoke up at our, our last uh, worship gathering in 2018, I think you called him Papa Dave. Did I catch that right? So, Dave, you're kind of a father and grandfather to a whole lot of people here, and you've made me feel loved and cared for. And you as a church holistically have done that for us. I, I can't tell you how many times people from our congregation have comment on, commented on how you all have welcomed us in, and so we're very grateful for that. We're going to talk today from this text because it compels us to talk this way about abiding and belonging. Rick taught us last week from verses 18 through 27 where this concept of abiding showed up. In verse 20 of 1 John chapter 2, John said, But you have been anointed by the Holy One, that's Jesus, and you all have knowledge. We've been anointed by Jesus with the Spirit. And down in verse 27, he goes on to say, But the anointing that you receive, the Holy Spirit that you receive from him, from Jesus, abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is just true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. This word could be translated remain, so remain in him, or continue, continue in him. And that is picked up again in our section for this week, beginning in verse 28, where John says, And now, little children, 
abide in him, continue in him, remain in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Let's pause for just a moment. If you're like me, those two verses immediately make you quake a little bit, right? In just a moment, I'm going to read some verses which, which ground us in our identity. But before we get there, those verses, like a lot of other verses in the Scriptures, cause us to immediately take stock. How are we living? What if Jesus came back right now? What would he think of the current trajectory of our lives? But thank God he doesn't stop there. Notice now what he says in verse 1 of chapter 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. A long, long time ago, 1,600 years or so, there was a North African bishop named Augustine. And Augustine talked quite a bit about the city of God. In fact, he has a book called The City of God. The city of God and the city of man. The city of God is not quite the same thing as heaven. The city of man is not quite the same thing as the world. It's a little more amorphous than that. The city of man is characterized by those who love themselves. Augustine and then later Luther, 1,100 years or so after Augustine, picked up on this theme, and they talked about it like this, that humanity, when it loves itself as the end, as, as the object of worship, that humanity becomes curved in on itself, almost sort of like spiritual scoliosis. We, we adore ourselves. We cannot help but admire ourselves, and we ourselves occupy all of our thinking. That's what Augustine, later Luther, would clarify as the, the city of man, those those curved in on themselves. The city of God is inhabited by those that God comes to with divine and compelling love, and it is as though He takes His anthropomorphic, because God doesn't have a hand. We, we speak of God's hands and various things to try to understand Him. But it's as though He takes His, his hand and puts it under the chin of one who is curved in on him or herself and lifts that chin up so that that human who is so inwardly curved 
can gaze into the eyes of holiness and love and see something more compelling than self. And truly, my beloved, here in this earth, until the Lord Jesus comes in his second coming, which we will talk about today, and makes all things new and puts down evil and convinces us without hesitation that he and he alone is the most beautiful thing in the universe, and to him all adoration is due, And in so doing, we will find our greatest rest and satisfaction. Until then, continually, day by day and week by week, we individually and we collectively need God to put his hands of love under our chins and lift our eyes to him so that we will no longer be curved in on ourselves and see him as the most compelling and beautiful thing in the world. And that's why we worship together weekly. And that's why we go to small groups. And that's why we read our Bibles. And that's why we meet together with brothers and sisters of the faith. So that we, as the hands and feet of God, might remind each other that God alone is worthy of our praise and God alone can satisfy the deepest longings of our souls. You can see this in the world all around us. The world around us, apart from Christ, is curved in on itself. And it is seeking every means possible of satisfying that deep and inescapable ache to find rest and satisfaction. But we ourselves, under whose chin... The hand of God has lifted our eyes to find him compelling and beautiful. Still struggle with this, do we not? Our careers, our houses, our children, our hobbies, our money, and on and on we could go. These things clamor for our affections. And if we are not careful, we can look a whole lot like the world around us, curved in on ourselves. And what John is calling us to here today, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, down through chapter 3, verse 3, is to lift our eyes to the one who alone can satisfy the deepest longings of our hearts and wait patiently for him until he returns and puts down sin and any competing affections. The first thing that John will say to us in these last two verses of chapter 2 is that in light of Jesus' sure return, we must hold fast to him in faith and obedience. This helps us understand the concept of what it means to abide in him. We must hold fast to him, remain in him, continue in him, or hold fast to him in faith and obedience. I remind you of what John says here in verse 28, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, when he comes again, when Christ comes again, 
we may have confidence and not shrink from him and shame at his coming. In other words, to put this together with my opening analogy, we do not want to be found as those who are constantly curved in on ourselves, but rather, conversely, our eyes are lifted up, awaiting His return, living in obedience for His glory. What was going on here in these churches in and around Ephesus, just by way of reminder, is that they were losing hold of the gospel itself. But Jesus Christ had come in the flesh to reconcile us to God that we might worship Him, not curved inwardly, but with eyes on Him. Inevitably, as we have talked about over the past several weeks, if we don't understand that Jesus is the Son of Man who took on flesh to be our substitute, to reconcile us to the one true God, then inevitably it doesn't matter how we live. The design of the redemption of Jesus is the restoration of worship, no longer curved in on oneself, but rather eyes toward God. But you can see logically that if you get the gospel wrong, then you will get the consequences, the implications of the gospel wrong. Jesus took on flesh to reconcile us to God that we might live for His glory. And as John has already commented and will again, he not only did this that we might obey God as restored worshipers, but that we might love those around us as restored worshipers. Jesus came to restore obedience. Jesus came to restore the ethic of love. And John writes to these dear brothers and sisters to remind them that the compelling voices all around them not unlike the compelling voices of our current culture, we must not pay heed to them, but rather to the gospel that has been preached to us, that the Holy Spirit reminds us of constantly, and then we must be careful to follow after worship, obedience to God, and to love one another from pure hearts. And here in this section, John calls them once again, to abide, to remain, to continue in what they had heard, and consequently in the implications of that, of living for the glory of God. In verse 29, he calls them to live righteously. This is part and parcel of what it means to abide. So we must hold fast to Christ in faith and obedience. Let's turn, if you don't mind, to John chapters 14 through 16. I assure you we will not read all of these, but I want to highlight the essence of what these three chapters in John's gospel teach us. I will say to you that if we are to truly understand what John says to us in his first epistle in 1 John, we need to understand well what he had written prior in his gospel. This is right after the Last Supper right before the high priestly prayer, before Jesus' arrest and eventual crucifixion. This is an intervening section where Jesus is taking time to instruct the hearts of his followers, and in particular, the twelve. And here in chapter 15, the, the middle of the three chapters, he is going to call the disciples famously to abide in him. You know that section probably relatively well. 
But what is he saying in the broader section? Let me highlight some things for you. In John chapter 14, verse 15, notice what Jesus says to the disciples. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. And it was important that they heard this, because in just a few short hours, he would be taken away from them. I will not leave you as orphans, verse 18. I will come to you. How? Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me, because I live, you will also live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Notice again verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not Love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Verse 25, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled neither let them be afraid. He tells them he's going to go away. Of course, they don't quite understand this yet. In a few short hours, as I've said, he would be taken away. But what does he promise them? He promises them that they will not be alone. How will he accomplish this? Because he will send to them the Spirit, who is very much God as well. God the Father... God the Son and God the Spirit have brought us into communion with themselves. Jesus will go on to say in chapter 15, I am the true vine, verse 1, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, He takes away, and every branch that does, not, that does bear fruit, He prunes that it may bear more fruit. Now remember, we just read in chapter 14 that Jesus calls the disciples to obey Him. He's going to commune with them through the Spirit and enable them by the Spirit to obey Him. And now in chapter 15, he gives them the metaphor of branches and vines. And so he says in verse 4, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Look down in verse 8. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So what's the logical sequential connection to all this? 
Jesus is going to go away. They're going to struggle to obey. They're going to struggle to feel like they belong. What's he going to do? He already had this planned. He was going to send the third person of the Trinity to take up residence inside of them, to remind them of all that he had said, and to enable them to obey. And then he calls them to abide. Part of this abiding will be keeping his commandments. Part of this abiding will be loving him. Part of this abiding will be resting in him and trusting him because he's the only one that can produce real fruit. And what is the result of all this, verse 11? We will have full joy. Later on in chapter 16, beginning in verse 4, he says, I did not say these things to you, the second half of verse 4, I did not say these things to you, From the beginning, because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, verse 7, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come. But if I go, I will send him to you. Down in verse 14, he says about the Spirit, He, the Spirit, will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now, why do we go through all this? Because in 1 John chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, Jesus, through the pen of the Apostle John, calls those believers in and around Ephesus to abide, to remain, to continue in Christ. Jesus had already said this to the disciples many decades before John wrote. So what does it mean to abide in Christ? Well, Jesus spells it out for us in John chapters 14 through 16. It is trusting in him, resting in him, remembering what he has said to us in his word, obeying him, loving him. And that's hard, isn't it? But my friends, we are not alone. This is why Jesus promised the helper in this context. The Spirit who would come and remind us of all that Jesus had done for us and to unite us, and this is very important, to unite us vitally to Jesus himself. This means that from beginning to end, our salvation is wholly dependent upon God. The Father and the Son made covenant before the world began that they would come and rescue some of God's people. And then Jesus really took on flesh and kept all the laws that we could not and would not keep and died in our places as a substitute and rose again in victory to give us access to God. And then not only this, he sends the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, to take up residence inside of us individually and corporately that we might be a holy people that worships the triune God and enjoys him forever. So when John compels the readers in 1 John chapter 2, verses 28 and 29 to abide, to remain, to continue, to hold fast, It is not some personal effort in and of themselves that will enable this and bring it to full completion. God himself will make sure that this comes to full completion. And yet, we have a role to play. Because we've been vitally reunited to the very life of the Godhead, 
This is what our redemption is all about. And because God lives inside of us, we now must and we can and we should yield to Him in faith, walking in the Spirit, as Paul will put it in Galatians chapter 5, keeping in step with the Spirit. What does this look like, practically speaking? What are we doing right now? We are reminding ourselves of the message of the gospel, which promises us vital reunion to the very life of the triune God. That's why we're here. If you didn't know that, I'm telling you that. What will you do with that this week? Well, you should rehearse what you heard today. Individually, certainly. Spending time in the Bible, not just because you have to, but because you get to. You get to be reminded of all the promises that the Godhead, the triune God, has leveraged on your behalf. All the power and love of the most powerful being in the entire universe conceivable has been leveraged on our behalf in pure, unadulterated love. When you go to your Bibles, that's what you're being reminded of. A dear lady came to me one time after a sermon where I had talked about the promises of God, resting in the promises of God. And she said, Pastor, do you have a list of the promises of God that I can meditate upon this week? She meant well. And I looked at her, I hope with humble, compassionate eyes, and I said, I won't tell you her name, I said, my sister, every single page of the Bible drips with his promises. That's why we go to the Word. And that forms how we think. It shapes our affections. When you're with people, you can always tell what they're passionate about, right? A guy who loves old 70s muscles car, muscle cars, what will he talk about all the time? He can't help it. He's talking about barracudas and chargers. I speak as a fool. I don't know. You can't, you can't help it. It's what comes out of your mouth. A guy who loves golf, he's going to talk about his latest set of clubs and where he has most recently played and his awesome dry-wicking pullover. That's what guys do who love golf. If you love arrowheads or coins or old currency or the Buckeyes or soccer or, or whatever it is you love, it's going to come out of you. And mostly that's okay. But when we soak in what God has done for us in Christ, when we drink deeply from that well on a daily basis, it comes out of us. It comes out of us in what we talk to God about. Not running around fretful all the time, but talking to him, reminding him of what he has said to us, and then resting in those promises. And then we encourage each other with those words, which is why things like small groups are so important, because we come together and remind each other of what is true. And one-on-one or little small groups of people getting together and reading the word and praying and encouraging each other. This is what it looks like to abide. Daily being reminded of what has been promised to us in Christ Placing our faith daily in Him, and then by the power of the Spirit, depending upon Him to helping to help us worship and glorify Him. Abiding is somewhat conceptual. It's not less than being in the Word and praying, but it's far more than that. It's more organic than that. Which is why I phrased it like I did in our first point. Hold fast to Christ in obedience and faith. John says in chapter 2 of his epistle, verses 28 and 29, that we have been born of God. Look with me, if you don't mind, in 
John chapter 1. Not only have we been given this vital union with Christ, where we're called to abide in Him like branches abide in the vine, we have also been made part of His family. Dave read these verses to us earlier from the first chapter of John's Gospel. Look in verse 9 with me. The true light, this is Jesus, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. He came to His own, His ethnic family, the Jews, and His own people did not receive Him. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So in other words, how did this abiding thing even come about? How did the vital union start? Birth from above, divinely initiated. And of course, we respond in faith. Look with me in chapter 3. You know this story well. Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, comes at night to Jesus because he wanted to come in secret. Some commentators would say that this is also a metaphor that Nicodemus at least up to this point, was himself still trapped in darkness. He says to Jesus, verse 2 of chapter 3, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, to use an old word, is flummoxed. He doesn't know what to do with this. What do you mean, born again? So he says to Jesus, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. What does it mean to be born again? God the Spirit, in theological terms, regenerates us, takes dead hearts and makes them new. Part and parcel, the promise of the new covenant, that God would give us new hearts and dwelt by the Spirit. And according to Jesus, these hearts would be refashioned and made to beat again for God. Vital union by the third person of the Godhead, by the Spirit himself. You do not see the wind, but you see its effects. You do not see faith, but you see its effects. We believe because the Spirit gives us a new heart. We are born from God as a gift. But, if you'll turn back with me to 1 John chapter 2. We are called to abide, and we can abide because we've been born from above. But there is a subtle warning here. Notice in verse 28, John warns his beloved that Jesus is, a, is coming again. He, he's going to appear again. And how does John want them to meet Jesus when he comes back? He wants them to be confident. This isn't cocky. It's not some sort of sense of self-entitlement, but it's like a humble confidence. 
And he doesn't want them to shrink from Jesus when he comes back, to shrink in shame. It reminds us of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. So we are always of good courage, Paul says. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 that each one will face the judgment seat of Christ. All will face the judgment seat of Christ. And in 1 John chapter 2, John says, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame and his coming. In other words, everybody is going to have to face Christ and give a reckoning for how we have lived. Now, how do you square this with the doctrine of justification by grace through faith alone? In other words, are we going to at one point, as Paul says here in 2 Corinthians 5, stand before the judgment seat of Christ and have to have all of our merits weighed against our demerits, our sinfulness, and if the merits outweigh the demerits, then we are allowed into the kingdom? The answer to that is no. With great confidence, we should say no. We are justified by grace as a gift received exclusively by faith, which is also a gift. Jesus is our only hope. We, we offer nothing to the equation, and yet it matters how we live. So it matters what you say. It matters what you think about. It matters how you dispense your resources of time and talent and treasure. Why have we been redeemed? We've been redeemed. The purpose of our redemption is the restoration of worship, right? Talked about that already. So that we are no longer constantly curved in on self, but rather our eyes are lifted to God and we live for His glory. So the words that John gives us in 1 John chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, that Paul gives us here in 2 Corinthians 5, are an exhortation. And so we must, as Paul says in Philippians 2, be constantly working out our salvation with fear and trembling. It's a sobering thing, right? This is serious. Paul will also say in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and this is more of a corporate context rather than just an individual context. In other words, this is for the whole church. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. There are rewards that will be handed down in the end. How we have dispensed our resources, how we have used our tongues, what our minds have dwelt upon. And it is a sobering reminder that we come together on occasions and call each other to examination. 
How are we living? This doesn't mean that we will ever be perfect. Who among us today is living perfectly? Good job. No one should lift their hands. I hope you didn't lift your hand in your heart. None of us are. We all have so very far to go. This, this is about trajectory. And this is why John will say, if you would like to turn back, if you're not currently there in 1 John chapter 2, verse 29, if we know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. In other words, if you're making progress, take heart. And this is one of the reasons, my friends, and, and I, I want you to hear this today. This is really, really important. This is one of the reasons why the body is so important. Sometimes it's hard for us to see our own progress, largely because we know our deficiencies. So what, what do I need from you? I need you to encourage the good that you see in me. And what do you need from me? And what do we need from each other? To remind it of the, of the good that we see in each other. You've heard the phrase, like father, like son. If you're around my kids long enough, you will know they're my kids. They have some of my tendencies for good and bad. It's like that, right? It's like that as God's people as well. If you are the people of God, you will, over time, practice righteousness. That will be your trajectory, your pattern of life, your lifestyle. And we want to celebrate that here. So I ask you again, what is the purpose of our redemption? The restoration of worship. I know this is a little corny, but I'm going to have you do it with me because I think this is really important. So your answer in just a moment will be the restoration of worship. What is the purpose of our redemption? The restoration of worship. We are no longer curved in unself, but our eyes are lifted toward God. And the body has a really important part to play in that, encouraging that and celebrating that. So, in light of Jesus' sure return, we must hold fast to him in faith and obedience. But lest you think this is all up to you, this is why he gives us verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3. Notice this. See what kind of love, 1 John 3, 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. Now, the old King James that I grew up on translated it this way. Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us. That's why we sang the song earlier. Back in 2013, I made my first trip to Kenya to do some training of pastors there. And one particular afternoon, we went to an orphanage outside of the capital of Nairobi. It was really more of a children's home. Some of those kids will be raised there for the rest of their lives. They keep it around 30 kids or so. It's not a huge orphanage. And while we were there, the kids, after lunch, got up together and sang, Behold... They, they speak English, a lot of them do in Kenya. So in English, they sang, Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called the children of God. I wish you could have been there with me for that moment. To be in a setting where children who formerly did not have a family but had been brought into a loving Christian environment could say and sing, Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called the children of God. And just anecdotally, I came home a month later, told my wife, and we adopted two boys from Africa. So God used that in our family. What a compelling moment, though, right? To look at fam children who formerly did not have families, but God had showed his grace to them, and now they were singing about it. Even the old King James Version doesn't, 
quite capture the thrust of the original language there. John is saying something like this. Look at the sort of love the Father has given us. It's like, it's like an exulting kind of exclamation. We could actually translate this something like this. Where in the world did that come from? But it didn't come from that world. It came from outside of that world. It was birthed from above. We were not naturally God's children. We were adopted in hope. Turn with me, please, to Ephesians chapter 1. Notice in verse 3 of Ephesians 1, the apostle says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Purpose of our redemption. In love, he predestined us, verse 5, for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Were we natural children, my friends? According to Paul, we were dead, Ephesians 2. Romans 5, we were his enemies. That's the striking thing about our salvation. It's spiritual adoption of mortal enemies. And that's why John can exclaim in 1 John 3, 1, where in the world did that come from? And do you see how that encourages us in the call of 1 John 2, verses 28 and 29? We are called to prepare for his coming, to not be curved inwardly, to remember the design of our redemption. But then he grounds us in the love of God. Paul will later say, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we are Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and a children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We won't take time to explore this in great detail, but he also says in Galatians 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. I encourage you to take some time to glance at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-9, through 9, which calls us to remember the privileges that we've been given in Christ and live for His glory. So, how do verses 1 and 2 of 1 John 3 help us with 1 John 2, 28 and 29? In 1 John 2, verses 28 and 29, we're left in a vacuum we would feel helpless and we would give up in a week. He's already hinted at this, however, back in verses 28 and 29 of chapter 2, because we've been born from above. It's a divine gift. And then he exclaims, where did this come from? Behold the manner of love that God has given to us, that we should be called his children, formerly enemies, adopted by grace. That's why the world doesn't often understand us. We don't look like the world because we've been born from above. And verse 2 of 1 John 3, John identifies them as beloved, dear brothers and sisters, 
We are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And again, 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 9 is a good reminder of what that tension looks like. Already redeemed, but awaiting the coming of Christ. What will we be like when he comes back? He's already come once to rescue us. What will we be like when he comes back? What will be like him? What will be the ideal age of the glorified saint with a resurrected body? I, I don't know. 27, maybe? Uh, maybe I'll have a full head of black hair. I would like my skin color to be just a couple of shades darker. Maybe to look like a really handsome Italian, that might be good. I'm sure I'll have like eight-pack abs. I'll be 6'2". Um, I will both be able to paint and hit a baseball 500 feet. I don't know what it'll be like. We can speculate about this all day long. But we know we'll be like Christ, and that will be perfect. No more sickness. No more disease. No more sin. And let me go a little further. No more capacity for sin. What will that be like? No more anxiety. No more worry. No more jealousy. No more anger. And we will dwell together with the Lord Jesus in perfect unity with God and with each other for forever, world without end. That's good news. And John reminds his hearers of this. In 1 Corinthians 13, 12, Paul will say, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. And so I say to you, my brothers and sisters, in light of Jesus' sure return, we must hold fast to him, abide in him in faith and obedience. And because of our privileged adoption, we have hope now and for eternity. We are not alone. Any call to obedience, any call to worship, any call to no longer be curved in on oneself is because of divine grace. And he will keep us and he will bring our redemption to full completion. It's coming. Don't be afraid. But then he reminds them at the end in verse 3, in keeping with the purpose of our redemption, which once again is the restoration of worship, we must wait for him with hope and devotion. In 1 John 3, 3, he says, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So what do we do today? We're reminded that Jesus is coming again, and we don't want to shrink in shame when he comes back. We've been born from above, We've been given this divine promise of spiritual adoption, we who were formerly enemies. Jesus is coming again. He'll bring our salvation to full completion. And then John once again says, keep on keeping on. Take stock of how you're living. Make progress in the faith. And we are to do that together. This is kind of like a coach, right? A coach pulls his team together at halftime, and he says to them, We've got to do better. We're not playing that well. We're not boxing out. We're not passing the ball. We're not running the offense. You're not listening to me. But, but lest I tear you apart, remember, you're my boys. I, I love you. I'm for you. Remember how far we've come together. But let's go back out on that court. Let's, let's play really hard. But win, lose, or draw, we're together in this I think that's kind of what John is saying here. Listen, my beloved, hold fast to Jesus. Abide in him. 
Remember that that this natural inward curve will never bring you satisfaction. Rather, await his return in hope and in faithful obedience. You belong to him after all. Nothing can take that away. He will bring your salvation to completion, even though your life seems interminable and it's really hard. And then he ends with, let's keep on pursuing him. Let's, Let's keep doing that together. I commend to you one more passage for your consideration, Matthew chapter 25. This would be a great follow-up if you want to do some more thinking on what it looks like to wait patiently for Jesus. This is the story of the ten virgins and also the story of the talents. A great reminder that we should wait with patience. The writer of Hebrews says this to us as we close. For you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. And in chapter 6, the writer says this, Though we speak in this way, this calling to perseverance, Beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This is how the writer of Hebrews felt about his audience. And I say to you, this is how we feel about you. So, In light of Jesus' sure return, we must hold fast him in faith and obedience. Because of our privileged adoption, we have hope now and for eternity. And in keeping with the purpose of our redemption, we must wait for him with hope and devotion. Let us do that together, my beloved. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I pray now for the glory of Jesus, for our mutual joy that we will not live as those who are content with being curved in ourselves. We know that doesn't satisfy. So please be gracious and faithful to remind us the, the folly of that path, that it can never really bring us joy. Instead, lift our eyes to the Lord Jesus, who has sent you, Holy Spirit, into our hearts to give us new birth that we might cry out to the Father, Abba, Father, dear Father, and await the coming of the Lord Jesus when he will make us totally new. And until then, may we persevere together in faith and devoted obedience. Help us, we pray, for the glory of the Lord Jesus. Amen.